0: Hey, how's it going? Suzanne Hogan here. At the end of last episode, all about entrepreneur Hiram Young, I mentioned that a people sister of Kansas City was going to take a little break for a while. And there are a couple reasons for that break. One, I need more time to research and come up with fresh ideas for a new crop of episodes. So if you have any tips or ideas, feel free to send them my way. But the other main reason for the break is that me and PHKC producer Mackenzie Martin have been crazy busy working on some other KCUR Studios podcasts, mainly a new six-part investigative podcast called Overlooked, hosted by Peggy Lowe. For the past couple years, she and other KCUR reporters have been diving deep into corruption within the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, primarily focusing on allegations around one former police officer, Roger Golubski, and stories of the many women he's alleged to have abused for decades. The first episode of the podcast just came out, and there are more on the way, and it's been crazy because there are a lot of wild things that are unfolding in real time. Just last month, the FBI arrested Golubski, and now more and more stories are coming out from people whose lives have been affected by this story for decades. People who are finally really being heard, and who are hoping for justice and accountability. In a lot of ways, I hate that this story exists in the first place. It's been really emotionally hard to work on, but it's a really important story to tell. And that's why I want to play the first episode in full here for you now. But before we get to that, though, please keep in mind that Overlooked was produced with adult audiences in mind. It contains graphic descriptions of violence, death, and sexual acts. So please take care of yourself when listening. Okay, I'll let host Peggy Lowe take it from here.
1: On September 15th, 2022... Ophelia Williams was taking her granddaughter to school about 7 o'clock in the morning when her cell phone rang.
2: I was like, why are you calling me so early in the morning?
1: It was a female FBI agent she knew.
2: She said, I have good news to tell you. She said, I just arrested Roger Golubsky.
1: The FBI had just arrested Roger Golubsky a former Kansas City, Kansas police detective, outside his home. Ophelia had been waiting for this news for more than 20 years. I couldn't believe it. I was like,
2: quit playing. She said, for real, I put handcuffs on him. I told her, I'm so happy that
3: this scumbag just got arrested.
1: The indictment against Golubski detailed years of rape and sexual assault he has alleged to have committed against Ophelia. It started in 1999 when he arrested her teenage sons. He told her she was attractive, said he could help her. He came back a few days later and raped her, according to the indictment. This happened for the next three to four years.
2: He kept doing it and doing it.
1: Why? Because I'm black. Because I'm black. Golubsky is white, and what he's accused of doing to Ophelia, he's accused of doing to one other Black woman, and the FBI has suggested, at least seven more women. I've been reporting on Roger Golubsky and corruption in the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department for two years, which is how I know that these federal charges against Roger Golubsky are just a fraction of what people say about him. Dozens. Dozens of other women tell similar stories. I'm Peggy Lowe, and this is Overlooked, a podcast from KCUR Studios and NPR's Midwest Newsroom. In this first season, we're investigating a corrupt white cop named Roger Galubski and the racist system that let him rule the black section of a tough river town. All of this came to light when we learned that Galubski put an innocent man in prison for 23 years.
4: There was nothing to tie me to this crime, nothing.
1: It wasn't until that man was exonerated and a list of murdered women surfaced that people who had the power to do something about it started to realize how much deeper this story went. You understand that we're accusing you of terrorizing Black women in Kansas City, Kansas for decades, correct?
5: On the advice of my attorney, I booked my Fifth Amendment constitutional rights.
1: For decades, Roger Galupski used his badge to exploit women. And it was an open secret.
4: He was known on the street for messing with women that were on the street.
3: I've spoken with police officers who, who were partnered with Galupski. They saw this, what he did, on, right before their eyes. The common refrain was, well, that's Roger being Roger.
1: There were people in Kansas City, Kansas, who tried to sound the alarm. It's just that not enough people listened.
2: Why do we have to keep going through it? And you got everything I've said, and nothing's changed for the 28 years besides of me being threatened. It's still not over, because he got arrested. He got to get convicted. Roger Golubski should pay his debt.
1: Everything we now know about former detective Roger Golubski started with a single case. So we're starting this story, episode one, with a woman named Nico Quinn, who witnessed a crime in the 1990s. April 15th, 1994. That was the day her world fell apart.
2: We grew up in the house with my grandmother, grandfather, auntie, uncles, cousins. That's how we grew up. Whole extended family. Whole extended family. We sat down and ate together. Everything we did was together.
1: A lot of the Quinns lived on Hutchings Street. It was about two in the afternoon when Nico Quinn realized she needed to call her boyfriend to tell him to pick up some milk for her kids. So she walked two doors down to her mom's house to use the phone. And that's when she saw him, a man dressed in all black, wearing a black cap. Nico watched as he approached a 1987 powder blue Cadillac DeVille idling on the side of the street.
2: You've seen that all the time where somebody be sitting on our block and somebody come from the next block. So that's what I thought it was.
1: But then he pulled out a shotgun.
2: You could hear that it would poof, like that at first, like the gun did not come out, and then he cocked it again. Then he shot, shot, shot.
1: Nico saw the man shoot three times. She didn't immediately know it, but her cousin was one of the men sitting inside that blue Cadillac DeVille. 21 year old Danielle Quinn, who everyone called Little Don, Along with thirty-four-year-old Donald Ewing, known as Donnie, who was a distant cousin to Nico. Others in her family knew what happened right away. First to get to the car was John Quinn, little Don's dad.
2: Yeah, John and my sister was there at the car Stacey before Stacy and my sister Liz was at the car.
1: So John Quinn was there, Stacy Quinn was there, Liz Quinn was there, Nico Quinn was there, my mother. Josephine Quinn mm-hmm. was there. And
2: my daughter and my son was at the car.
1: Little Don's dad broke out the driver's side window in the locked car with a wine bottle, hoping to save his son. Nico's sister Stacy was screaming, oh my God, it's Little Don. Donnie, the other man in the Cadillac, was still briefly alive and also screaming. Donnie was
2: like, I don't know why they did this. I don't know why they did this. We didn't do nothing, we hadn't did nothing.
1: Nico mostly remembers Little Don in the car with half his face gone.
2: He was like, and we trying to ask him what happened, and then he just lay back and died. And my mama, I think she closed his eyes because she was praying for him. She said, he gone. So my mama said, my was on that side where he was.
1: The Quinn family sees him take his last breath right there in front of their homes on Hutchings Street. But even with multiple witnesses, the truth vanished as quickly as that man in black who shot little Don and Donnie. Now, before we get into that, though, here's something you need to know about Kansas City. It's a town split in two. On one side is Missouri. That's the Kansas City everybody thinks of. But across the river is Kansas City, Kansas. It's smaller and gets a lot less attention. Most people call it KCK. The news of the shootings was so big, it made headlines on the Missouri side. The Kansas City Star's main headline the day after the murder was about Kurt Cobain's suicide. But at the bottom of the page, well, let me read the lead. Two more killings Friday capped one of the bloodiest weeks in Kansas City, Kansas, in at least a decade. This story mentioned a 17-year-old held for questioning. But none of the stories could name the suspect because he was a minor. But back on Hutchings Street, a name surfaced within seconds of the shooting a name Nico first heard from her next door neighbor.
2: Yeah, she said, oh my God, that's Lamont. I said, I don't know no Lamont.
1: Lamont, who? Well, from here on in, you're going to be hearing his name a lot. Because this episode is about how a 17-year-old kid named Lamont McIntyre was locked up a few hours after the shooting and framed for that double murder, one he didn't commit, and how it was partly Nico Quinn's fault. And I just heard a way say, no, You've got to make this right. You might have heard about Lamont McIntyre. Ever since he was freed from prison in 2017, he's been in the news.
4: <laughs> How are you doing, man? How are everybody doing? Oh my God, you. <laughs> I'm fine now,
1: man. One of the people responsible for putting Lamont behind bars was the lead detective, Roger Golubski. But was it just sloppy police work or part of a much bigger problem? When I started looking into this case a couple years ago, what I found was a system of law enforcement that didn't just put an innocent black man behind bars, it left a wake of black women and a whole community as victims too. Everything about April 15th, 1994, turned out to be about who knew the truth and who was shut out from telling it. That day, time boiled down to a muddy slow motion, like the Missouri River as it runs through Kansas City. The truth would be deliberately covered up for decades. But the people who kept trying to expose the truth were the eyewitnesses on Hutchings Street, Nico Quinn and her family.
5: This will be a witness statement taken at 3016 Hutchings, Kansas City, Kansas, on this fourth month, 15th day of 1994, the time is...
1: April 15th, 1994. Just 45 minutes after the shooting on Hutching Street, 21-year-old Nico Quinn is being interviewed by a KCK policeman named W.K. Smith.
5: What is your full name? Nicole Montoya Quinn. Did you have an occasion to witness a shooting that occurred there about... Yes. Okay. Would you tell me the facts pertaining to... This incident?
2: I seen a man come running from between the houses and he ran up to a blue car and shot the witness. He, it was three shots.
5: Okay, now which house did he run from between?
2: Uh, a yellow house on the next block.
5: On the next block? uh uh-huh. hmm And that block would be what?
2: Hiawatha up there.
5: Okay, Hiawatha. And so. What was, how was he dressed?
2: He had on all-black, a black shirt, black hat, black pants, and
1: black tennis shoes.
5: Okay. Did he have a mask or anything on? No. Okay. Did you recognize this individual?
1: No. Okay. Nico Quinn is certain. She's told the cop that she was born here, grew up here, still lives here. The guy was dressed in black, but he didn't have a mask. And she doesn't know the guy. The cop presses her further.
5: Were there any words exchanged between him and the people that were in the Cadillac?
1: Not that I know
5: of. Okay, did you know the people that were in the Cadillac?
1: One was my
2: cousin.
5: And what was his name?
2: Don- Danielle Quinn. Danielle. Yes.
5: How you spelling that?
1: D-O-N-I-E-L.
5: Okay. And what was the other's name?
1: I don't know. Nico's family wants her to stop talking to the police. Nothing good ever came from that for many of them. She wants to be done, but the cop's not having it.
5: Am I finished? No, 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 no. Do you know whether or not the people in the Cadillac, your cousin included, were having any difficulties with anyone? No, I don't. Okay.
1: Actually, Nico did know about a difficulty little Don was having. But she didn't want to tell police because her family was telling her to stop talking to the cops, and she didn't want to be the one to snitch.
5: And after he shot three times into the vehicle, I assume, did he mutter anything?
2: No, not that I seen.
5: Okay, did he walk back in the easterly direction toward How uh, or did he run? He ran. And you never saw this person before? No. If you saw this person again, would you be able to recognize him? Yes. Okay. End of statement. Time, 14, 50 hours.
1: Nico Quinn's first interview with the KCK cops about the double murder that took her cousin Little Dawn lasted 4 minutes and 12 seconds. We'll get to what the police were doing in just a couple minutes, but first we need to talk about Nico and Little Dawn. Of all the Quins, and there's a lot of them, Nico was Titus with Little Dawn. They were born just a year apart, but told everybody they were twins. When we was teenagers,
2: we would be on the phone from sunup to sundown. We was like two peas in a pod. I knew every secret that he had. I knew everything about him. He knew about me. When something was going on, I called him.
1: Nico and other Quinn family members say the same thing. Little Don was handsome, charming, and funny. They say he should have grown up to be a famous comedian, like Kevin Hart.
2: Oh my goodness, this guy he could brighten up a room. I can be down, I could be sad. He come in a room and he like hilarious. He
1: could dress, he could sing, he can dance. But Little Don had a big problem. He was an addict, caught cocaine mostly, and it got him into trouble. Because in the days before the shooting, Little Don was accused of stealing some money from a drug house. Nico knew this, partly because she and Little Don were both a part of the drug business in KCK. And the night before he was murdered, Little Don was beaten badly.
2: Yeah, he came over and his eye was swole, his head was busted, he had cuts all over his legs, bruises on his back from where they was kicking him. He said it was like seven of them that jumped him, they was beaten with poles and everything.
1: Nico let him stay at her house the night of April 14, 1994. As he was leaving the next day, little Don swore to her, I'm going to get clean, I'm going to rehab, I'm going to take care of my six-month-old son. That was April fifteenth, 1994.
2: He had kissed me on my forehead, and he was telling me that he was going to get his life together. He was going home, take a shower, and he said, I'm about to go see my son. I'm going to give Tony some money for him, and I'm going to go ahead and check into rehab that Monday. He got killed that Friday.
1: Really? He walked out
2: that door. Within maybe 15, 20 minutes, my cousin was gone. And it was like when he told us that he was deceased, it was like everything inside of me came out because I couldn't believe he was gone. I couldn't believe he was gone. And that day, I drank and drank and drank And then they started smoking PCP. And it was like everywhere we were going, I was seeing him in the state that I just seen him in with his face gone. And it's like he was trying to say something to me. Everywhere we was going, I was seeing him. And I said, I can't take this. So I did hit the stick. I smoked PCP for the first time ever in my life because I wanted to numb myself.
1: While the Quinns are reeling from the loss of a favorite family member, KCK police are scrambling. There's been a double murder in broad daylight at a time when homicides were already high, high enough to land on the front pages and the TV news. Now, this is where that name, Lamont, comes back into the story. Although Nico never mentioned that name to police, her next-door neighbor did. The neighbor told police that she thinks the man in black, the man who shot three times into the Cadillac, is a guy named Lamont, a guy who was dating her niece. So KCK police went looking for a Lamont they happened to know, a high school student named Lamont McIntyre. Like the guy dating the next-door neighbor's niece, he was black and named Lamont. But the similarities stopped there. They arrested 17-year-old Lamont McIntyre. Now, this really wasn't a complicated case. But what happened from here on in does get a little complicated. Police think they have their guy, and they got to prove it's the guy. So the day after Lamont was arrested, lead detective Roger Golubski and another officer went to Nico Quinn's home with a photo lineup of five young Black men. Of the five pictures, three were men in McIntyre's family, Lamont, his brother, and a cousin. Galubski wrote a report that said Nico wasn't sure, but that it could be number three, Lamont McIntyre. Three more weeks went by, and Nico asked for another meeting with Golubsky. They met behind the local high school. She was scared to death. She'd seen people watching her house, armed men knocking on her door, then running away. According to Nico, Golubsky said if she identified Lamont McIntyre, things would go better for her. He could help her find a new apartment to be safe. And here's where we'll mention differing accounts of what happened. Golubski said Nico identified Lamont McIntyre's photo as the shooter. Yet Golubski never reported that in the official police file. Nico said she didn't ID Lamont at that meeting. In fact, Nico and the other Queens instantly had their suspicions about who really killed Little Don. Suspicions that proved true a week after the murders. Because we already knew who did it. We knew that Cecil
2: and had something to do with it. We knew Aaron had something to do with it because they kept trying to get him in the car the
1: night before. Cecil Brooks and Aaron Robinson were big drug dealers in KCK. Because they thought he owed them money or something, right? right. They
2: said that he, had he stole, stole some money. money. And common sense would tell anybody, if somebody stole something from you, they ain't going to be nowhere to be found.
1: Nico's older sister, Stacy, was familiar with that drug house and she found out there that supposedly another drug dealer named Neil Edgar Jr. had been paid by Cecil Brooks to kill Little Don. Neil Edgar Jr.'s nickname was Monster, which was a good descriptor of his behavior. But we should note that Edgar gave sworn testimony years later where he denied any involvement in the killings of Little Don and Donnie, And he's never been charged in connection with their deaths. Five months after the double murders, in September 1994, Nika was finally called to the county courthouse to testify. Even though she had suspicions of who actually did it, Golubsky was pressuring her to identify Lamont McIntyre as the killer. But when she arrived, Nika was surprised by Lamont McIntyre's appearance. This Lamont was tall, dark-skinned, and his ears stuck out from close-cropped hair. He didn't wear braids like the killer Nico had seen. Then while she was waiting in the witness room, Nico told the county prosecutor, a woman named Tara Moorhead, that this couldn't possibly be the guy who killed her cousin.
2: I said, well, Tara, his ears are too big and he's too tall.
1: But Moorhead and Golubski insisted. They have their guy, the case is being cleared quickly, and they tell her, get on board or else. And she said, we're going to do what we said
2: we're going to do, what we went over. You're going to do this or I'm going to send your black ass to jail. And you will never see your kids again. And it was Galuski and him, so I said, I send him to go get your kids right now. Mm. And I'm sitting there. We come out and I'm sitting there. And I'm looking at Lamont. And she's asking me these questions. And I'm like, in my gut it's saying, tell the truth. Just say it. Just say it wasn't him. Just say it wasn't him. And I'm sitting there. And she give me this look like. We worked it out. Do what you were told. And all I could think of was my kids. Because I know when everybody went to jail, or something happened, I had everybody's kids. So who's going to take care of my kids?
1: That forced testimony helped send Lamont McIntyre to prison for 23 years. No gun, no forensic evidence, no motive— And despite the fact that Lamont McIntyre had a solid alibi. That testimony also sent Nico Quinn to a different kind of lockup. She came out of the courtroom, ran into a relative, and told her, I lied. And then, in a stupor, she walked a few miles from the courthouse to her home. And I was crying the whole way. She felt unbearable guilt and didn't want to go on. When I got there... I took a handful of pills with some crown roll
2: and downed it. And I was laying there and I just heard her voice say, No, you gotta make this right. Make yourself throw up or something? Yeah, yeah.
1: So Nico survived her suicide attempt. She saved herself and then she set out to save Lamont. As
2: long as Lamont was in there, I was in there with him because a lie. If you know the word, you know the
1: Bible, you know you're not supposed to lie. She went to see Lamont McIntyre's mom, and Nico told her the truth. She was like, we need to talk to somebody. So I sat down with somebody. She had had an attorney or something and told her. But I felt so bad. Nico Quinn kept telling the truth, trying to make it right. All the Quinns did. But that's not all they did. Like, Nico and her mom told police that they believed Little Don was killed by his drug connections, a lead police never followed up on. The Quinns also tried to help several times to get Lamont McIntyre a new trial. In 1996, two years after the double murder, Nico signed an affidavit saying she lied, and Lamont McIntyre didn't do it. A judge refused to believe Nico's recantation. And then it was
2: like, I was damned if I told somebody and I was damned if I didn't.
1: Eventually, the toll of Little Dawn's murder on her whole family was too much. So Nika left Kansas City. What she saw that day and what she was made to say about it has hung on to her like a rock, dragging her down ever since. I'm tired of telling this
2: story. It's like an old sore that have healed, and then I'm going back pulling off a scab. When it start bleeding... Y'all send me on my way to lick my own wounds. So it's, it, it mentally drains me, mentally, physically, and
1: emotionally. Then, in 2009, Lamont McIntyre's luck finally changed when he connected with a guy known for getting people out of prison. That's coming up right after this.
0: From the pandemic, to climate change, to elections, there's a lot going on in Kansas City right now. You can get it all in one place at KCUR's daily news podcast, Kansas City Today. My name is Nomi Ujia-Dean, and I bring you stories from KCUR's award-winning newsroom. We cover the issues that matter to you, like housing, criminal justice, and education. You can subscribe to Kansas City Today wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Jim McCloskey lives in New Jersey.
3: This call is being recorded. Hey,
1: Jim. That guy just said, this call is being recorded. So that's cool about you, right?
3: Yeah, that's fine.
1: Jim's been getting innocent people out of prison since the 1980s. Now, lately, we've heard a lot about wrongfully imprisoned people, mostly black men, incarcerated for decades, finally receiving justice and being freed from prison. There's now a National Registry of Exonerations, which says that more than 3,200 people have won their cases in the U.S. since 1989, which is a testament in part to Jim McCloskey and his important work. Because Jim founded the first of the organizations that began seeking exonerations. It's called Centurion Ministries, and this was back before DNA testing became a big thing and getting innocent people released from prison. Jim did it old school, with shoe leather, tracking down witnesses by knocking on doors, getting confessions face-to-face, and digging up court records in the days before computers. He was also the investigator who helped get Lamont McIntyre exonerated. And all these years later, he's still appalled at how KCK law enforcement treated the Quinns.
3: In all the cases that I've worked on over 40 years, never have I come across a case where the victim's loved ones have told the police, you've got the wrong man. They also did what they could do, help free Clamont, who they knew was an innocent man. And what really disgusts me is that the police and the prosecutors dismissed, disregarded whatever the family of the victim has to say and tell them.
1: To clear Lamont's name, Jim had to find out who really killed little Don and Donnie. And it was Nico Quinn who he credits for giving him the information that finally busted the case wide open, 15 years after the murders. It was 2009, and Jim was in KCK working on the case. He had several suspects in mind for the double murder. Then one of the Quinns told him, you need to talk to Nico.
3: That's when she told me that Monster was the killer.
1: Monster was the street name for Neil Edgar Jr., allegedly an enforcer for a drug gang. Nico's sister, Stacy, believed Monster was the real killer of Little Don and Donnie. And the word had even gotten back to the lead detective on the case, Roger Golubski.
3: Do you think Golubski ever wrote a report or there's any indication that he interviewed Stacy about what she saw? Not what she knew, what she saw that afternoon? Not a word.
1: In fact, in the first police report, it says Stacy was not available for interviews the day of the murders. That's a quote. Not available. That's even though she was there and probably had the best view of the shootings. So why didn't Golubsky interview her? Well, as we'll get into later, it's complicated because Golubsky knew Stacy Quinn very well.
3: One thing about Roger Golubsky... He knew where all the bodies were buried up there.
1: Jim learned a lot about lead detective Roger Golubski while investigating the McIntyre case. He said North KCK became Golubski's, I'm quoting here, hunting ground.
3: He knew every drug house in that area. He knew who the drug addicts were. He knew who the drug dealers were. He knew where they operated. He knew where all the crime took place. He was king of the road up there. He knew every nook and cranny.
1: Jim McCloskey calls Golubsky the dirtiest cop he's ever encountered in his 40 years of investigating police. We now know, thanks to Lamont McIntyre's case, that Golubsky terrified and preyed upon the black community in KCK for decades. And this is where Golubsky's record gets even more graphic. Jim McCloskey says Golubsky was obsessed with chasing vulnerable black women.
3: He was always on the lookout for attractive black women. Always. Always when he would visit a crime scene and talk to victims, murder victims' families.
1: During the McIntyre case alone, Golubsky was said to have hit on at least three of the women involved in the case. Nico Quinn, another eyewitness, and...
3: He even came on to Sandra Newsom, who was the mother of Danielle Quinn, one of the victims in the Lamont McIntyre case. He came on to her... At that very initial meeting, asked her if she liked to date white men.
1: Do you date white men? That's actually the line Galupski used all the time.
3: So he comes up on the porch,
2: sun sun going down. Hey, babe, how you doing?
1: This is how Sandra Newsom remembers it.
2: He said, "Well, I'm the detective that's taking care of you. and he's doing all this weaving and bobbing and all this pimping and and clicking and can." And he got this gold ring on his finger and this shit all on this, dot, these gold chains on his neck, and he's dripping, you know. So we'll be providing you some information, you know. Oh, and by the way, lovely lady like he's doing on Friday night sitting here. What? Now I'm looking at him like, have you lost your motherfucking mind?
1: A few months later, Golubsky also came onto 21 year old Nico Quinn. She was waiting in a witness room, about to testify in Lamont McIntyre's first trial, sitting with her big sister, Stacy, who was about 25 at the time.
2: And we were sitting in that room, and he was telling me that he heard that I was a dancer.
1: Before the double murder, Nico had been working at a strip club.
2: He wanted me to stand on the table and strip, and how he wanted to get to know me, and my sister was telling him. She kind of, like, put her hand in front of me. And she was telling him, this one right here, you're going to leave alone. And she told me, don't ever go around her because he was the devil. She called him a snake.
1: Now, remember when I mentioned that Stacy was in the street the day of the double murders, probably had the best view of the man in black who shot Little Don and Donnie? Golubsky wrote on the police reports that she wasn't available for an interview. But Golubski knew Stacy very well. Because her family says he'd been messing around with her, those are their words, since she was about 16 years old.
2: From what I was told from my sister, they had a relationship. He had arrested her for prostitution back in the early 90s. That's when he started putting her in jail. Maybe it was something he wanted that she wouldn't do or she wouldn't give him. That's the
1: only thing I can think of. As it turns out, Golubsky was known for seeking out black sex workers. It's something Jim McCloskey learned when he was investigating the Lamont McIntyre case.
3: The black prostitutes, uh, I've I've spoken with a number of them over the years and with uh, a number of people who just who've seen him, these women in his car, he picked them up. It's really peculiar. And he had an obsession with black women.
1: He also discovered that a lot of people in the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department knew about Golubsky's behavior and laughed about it. Even the FBI knew about it.
3: He had complete license to do what he did, and he did it for decades.
1: Beginning in the late 1990s, Nico bounced around the country a bit, living for a while in Southern California, another while in Florida. She became a truck driver, but she stayed away from KCK because she was scared. Little Don's alleged real killer, Monster, and others in his operation were still out there, and she was afraid of Golubski, too. But she kept track of Lamont McIntyre's case, staying in touch with his mom and Little Don's mom, her auntie. And every time she was asked to testify or talk to investigators to tell the truth, she was there. Difficult as it was, she'd come home every once in a while. She signed another affidavit in 2014 saying the killer was not Lamont McIntyre and that she knew who it really was. Finally, Nico Quinn came home in 2020. And since then, I've spent a lot of time with her, including one afternoon at her apartment. I always, I was driving over here thinking, I always feel guilty even asking you this again. So I just want you to know that I'm sorry (laughs) that I'm putting you through it because... You know, it's trauma.
2: I mean, in your case, it's one thing, because I want to talk about it. And I was thinking about it the other day. Because of what happened April the 15th, 1994, my life changed to the point where I was still this person, but I wasn't the person that I was
1: before this happened. She says she has five reasons for coming home. Her four kids and a promise she made to her grandmother to make things right.
2: People don't understand how it feels to be called a liar and you have so much respect. I have so much respect from so many people because I hung around a lot of people. I was popular. And when people hear that you snitching or you lied about something major like that or put an innocent man in prison, that right there is gonna make people it's gonna shun people away from you. And that was one of the hardest things, is the people that I used to be friends with or respected me didn't have that respect for me anymore. It's been hard. It's been hard because of me making the decisions I made because my life was so disfigured in 1994. My kids didn't get the mother that they should have had because of the mental and the trauma and everything I was going through.
1: The rest of the Queens suffered, too. Looking back, Nico says it was like everything went downhill from the day of little Don's murder. The family had several losses. Relatives were killed violently. It took a toll on most of the Quinns, including Nico's grandmother.
2: And every time somebody would pass, I would go sit by the bathroom door to hear my grandmother pray. That's how I learned how to pray. And the first time I ever heard my grandmother cry, because she was a strong woman. And it was hard to sit there and just hear that hurt and pain of losing her grandson, then her baby son, and then her, grand, her firstborn granddaughter. What did the prayer sound like? It was a cry for help. She was, cry, she was praying for her family, praying for covering.
1: In 2004, Nico's grandmother was on her deathbed She told Nico she wasn't worried about her because Nico's always been able to take care of herself and others. But her grandmother told her to make things right with Lamont McIntyre. Make things right, she said. Nico's been doing that ever since. One day, in particular, and in person. October 13th, 2017, in KCK, just outside the county courthouse. After 23 years Lamont McIntyre was released from prison. That's him right there. Lamont McIntyre is standing on the sidewalk outside the county courthouse, looking like a college professor with his serious black glasses and borrowed blue striped shirt. He's surrounded by family, friends, his lawyers. He's looking up at the sun like he's seeing it for the first time in a long time.
4: How everybody doing? Oh my God, it. <laughs> I'm fine now, man. I'm good. nice out here. Feels good. Walk us through what it was like to walk
0: out of those
4: doors. Ah, I'm still in shock, but uh, I'm sure they'll wear out soon. Uh, I'm
1: all right. I'm happy, you know.
4: I'm thanking God. I'm thanking everybody who supported me and been there for me. And it feels good. It feels good. I'm happy.
1: The reporters are asking lots of questions. What's he going to do first? What's he going to eat? He sees his mom. They hug for a long time. Oh my lord, she says. Oh my lord. Then a few minutes into the sidewalk celebration, one of Lamont's family members says, someone has something to say to you. And there's Nico Quinn, in a pink dress, a gold cross around her neck, standing in front of the man who she helped put in prison.
4: Hey, how you doing? So Come, here. Come here. You're sorry, you ain't care that no more? With.
1: <laughs> she says, I'm so sorry, and begins to cry.
4: You let that go. You let that go. You ain't got to worry about that. I forgive you. I've been you a long time ago.
1: Lamont McIntyre takes Nico Quinn into a tight hug. He's talking right into her ear, saying, It's over with. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. You
4: ain't got to worry about that. I'm sorry that you was put in that position. You don't have to worry about that real, you let that go. It's good. It's a new day now. It's over with.
1: And for once, Nico Quinn doesn't have to talk. She's speechless. She shakes her head, yes, toward Lamont like, okay, we're good. And she backs away and disappears into the crowd. But this story doesn't end with Lamont getting out of prison. In fact, that's just where we're starting. Because what Roger Golovsky did to Lamont McIntyre is just one piece of decades of violence and discrimination endured by the Black community of KCK. Things many people knew about, but people in power haven't done anything about until now. Things written off because the victims were on the lowest rung of the social ladder. Open discrimination. Women whose murders were never solved. Coming up this season, overlooked So the FBI said he might be connected to the murders of how many people?
2: Girl, they said a lot.
1: You understand
0: we're accusing you of raping women and coercing women into giving false testimony. Some of the grossest acts of corruption a police officer can commit, right? You understand that as you sit here today. This isn't the first you're hearing of this.
5: I mean, advice of my attorney, I broke my Fifth Amendment constitutional rights.
3: Her murder was never solved, right? No.
5: After I heard about all these women and the things that went on, that was one thing that I was really
2: scared about because I'm like, this man is a homicide detective. Death is nothing to him.
0: Peggy Lowe is the host of KCUR Studios' new investigative podcast, Overlooked. You can subscribe now by searching for Overlooked wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Suzanne Hogan, and I hope to be bringing you more stories about the people who've created Kansas City soon. Until then, though, keep sending us your ideas and stay tuned to the feed. We've got more things in store. Okay, thanks for listening and take care.